Let's pray, shall we? You, Lord, are our one defense. You, Lord, are our righteousness. Oh, God, how we need you. May your spirit, Lord, minister to us now as we open your word to us. I pray, Father, that you'll help us to understand, help us to apply, help us to have a story and to tell it. Because, Lord, the stories that you give us, the stories that we, um, the stories that, that we realize that you're in the midst of, these truly are victory stories. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we get to look at one of Paul's many victory stories. And he had a lot of them, didn't he? Now, we know what victory stories are. And we share them nearly every week. So how do we frame them? How about miracles, perhaps? Now, we've had miracles in our midst, haven't we? We've had a death and resurrection in our midst. Remember how Rusty, several years ago, after his open-heart surgery, for 45 minutes without oxygen, and that's when he was in the hospital. It is very, very rare indeed for a hospital staff to work on somebody for 45 minutes. But even though it happened several years ago, Rusty is still vertical. He's still with us on this side. Spiritual resurrection has also happened at Grace United over the years, hasn't it? It's amazing. See, when someone comes to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, it is a supernatural work that the Lord has done. See, non-Christians are dead, aren't they? Separated in their trespasses and sins from a holy God. Rebellious creatures. And as Paul told us in Ephesians, that every non-Christian is by nature a son or daughter of wrath and a follower of the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. We don't like to hear that, but that's what the condition is of every non-Christian on the planet. But when someone is born again, he or she is spiritually raised from the dead given new life, and the process of salvation begins at that very moment when he or she repents of their sins and believes the gospel. Remember Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and I give them eternal life. They follow me. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And let's not forget, the Lord will finish what he starts. Isn't that true? Remember Philippians 1, 6, he says, I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And is this not one of the reasons why we come together on Sunday mornings to give God the praise and glory and honor and the worship that he deserves, but also to help us, to encourage us to keep going, to fellowship with each other and to learn how to be more effective in being the witness to those who so desperately need salvation. My brothers and sisters, we need to continually express gratitude for the salvation that God has given us in Christ. You know, as King David says, he says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. When was the last time you said so to others about your salvation? 
Well, another kind of victory story that we hear at Grace United, and this is what we hear the most of, is this. It's summed up like this. Life is hard, but God is good. See, we are learning as a small cell in the body of Christ the truth of Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, what's his purpose? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, the Lord wastes nothing in our lives. Everything we experience, whether we label it good or bad, is really all good. Why? Because the Lord uses all of it to make us like Jesus. Now, that's not to say that everything that happens to us is intrinsically good. True? Severe sickness, is that a good thing in and of itself? No. How about death of loved ones? No. How about painful, broken relationships? Is that a good thing? No, not intrinsically. But again, the Lord allows even those things, or he even sends those things for a purpose. And the purpose is that we might become just like Jesus when it's all said and done. So in our passage for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, we're going to see one of Paul's victory stories. And the victory story is, life is hard, but God is good. And so in verses 12 and 13, we are going to see Paul, in essence, proclaiming this very thing, the first part, life is hard. And then in verses 14 to 17, we will hear Paul exclaiming, but God is good. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. If you don't have it open yet, please, please do that. Unless you have it memorized. Anybody have these verses memorized? Yeah, I didn't think so. But anyway, let's go ahead. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Paul writes, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. You know, pretty straightforward, you know, account of of what was going on in his life there. But here we see Paul introduce a number of things. Remember how he was dealing with the Corinthians, allowing false teachers into their fellowship, into their church, to have the upper hand even, bringing with them a false gospel. And the false gospel was mostly something along these lines. If you were a Gentile, in order to be a Christian, you need to become a Jew first. Because after all, Jews were God's chosen people. And so what the men needed to do, according to these false teachers, was to get circumcised. Ouch. And also for everyone to eat kosher food, according to the Jewish dietary laws of Moses, and also to worship on the Sabbath. And by the way, this is not the Sabbath. You knew that, right? This is the Lord's Day. This is, this is Resurrection Sunday. And in a sense, we celebrate every Sunday as the Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. But the Sabbath is what? Saturday. That's the Jewish day of worship. And so these Judaizers, these false teachers, basically told these guys, hey, listen, you're a Christian. Yeah, you think you're a Christian, but you really got to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. This was the false teaching that they were trying to to put upon the church in Corinth. 
And so here was Paul, upset at the false teaching that these so-called super apostles were introducing into the church. And he wrote a very strongly worded letter from Ephesus. That's where he was. That was his place of ministry. It was an impassioned letter. It was tear-stained. And he wanted to set them straight. And so what did he do? He gave it to Titus, another pit, another pastor and training, just like Timothy was. And he gave it to to Titus. He says, Titus, I want you to take this letter over to my brothers and sisters in Corinth. And so he did. He went off and and took took the letter. And it took a little while for him to go to, to Corinth from Ephesus and to actually see how they would respond with this very forceful letter. But meanwhile, Paul had to work hard. He had work to do in ministry where he was. But his uncertainty about how the church is going to receive this letter grew strong and stronger and stronger and more uncertain. And Paul began to get worried. Now, you know, in Christian circles, we don't say worry, do do we? No, we usually say what? Concerned. Concerned. Paul was concerned about how the Corinthians were going to receive that. Has this ever happened to you? You send that text or that email or that video. And, you know, you know it's painful, you know it's difficult, but you do it anyway. And when you send it, right at the moment that you send it, you, you are sure that it is the way it needs to be done, the way it needs to be communicated. But after you press send, then what? Well, I don't know about that. You begin to wonder. And so a little time passes. Then a little bit more time passes. You didn't hear anything from the person that you sent it to. And, of course, in our days of instant gratification, you're waiting for a few minutes, right? (laughs) But no word comes. And then a few hours, and you're getting concerned. And then days happen, and no word. And so the concern over your relationship with this person that you value very highly now gets ratcheted up. And it gets tighter and tighter. And before you realize it, the correspondence that you sent begins to consume you. And you're afraid that your relationship might be over, taken down by your own hand. Ever happened to you? Never, huh? (laughs) Well, this is sort of how it was with Paul. Of course, he didn't have texting. He didn't have email, but he had letters. He sent this to Titus, sent it off, and Paul was waiting for an answer. And so with my attempt to paint what I think is an accurate backdrop of, you know, what was going on here, let's look for a second and see what Paul gained during this time and what he lost. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, we see Paul, he gained another opportunity to spiritually serve people in a town called Troas. And now Troas is about 100 miles north of Ephesus. And Ephesus, of course, is, as I mentioned, where he wrote 2 Corinthians. So he found word, he got word that Troas, and he also started a church there too, by the way, that there was some more ministry work to be done there in Troas. So he went up to Troas. And apparently that he and Titus agreed to meet at Troas. And so he went up there. He was waiting 
for, for, for Titus while he was working. And his deep love for the Corinthians and his uncertainty about how they would receive that letter kept Paul up at night. We might say that he lost peace of heart. He lost peace of mind there. He went to sleep with the Corinthians on his mind, and he woke up with a knot in his stomach. He was afraid that he might have won the battle but lost the war. Remember how he paid that emergency visit to, to, to lambast and to blast those false teachers, and then to follow that up with a very impassioned letter. And so when he got to Troas, Paul again began to serve these people while he was anxiously waiting for Titus's return. And he waited, and he waited. And Paul's heart grew ever more restless. And for some unexplained reason, Titus did not show up in Troas. And so Paul said, I've got to go find this guy. I've got to go find my brother. I've got to go find out how the Corinthians received this letter. How do they respond to it? And so what do you do in verse 13? He says he went to try to find Titus in Macedonia. Macedonia was just across the, across the sea there. It's where kind of where Greece is, as we understand it. So now, let's interact with what Paul was writing here in, this, in these couple verses. As careful Bible readers, let's ask some observation questions here. Like, Paul, what happened? What happened here with, with them? Did you find Titus? How did the Corinthians receive the letter? Your deep concern for the Corinthians even prevented you from ministry in Troas. You had to stop your ministry task that the Lord gave you to do. Paul, what happened? Well, in these verses, do we have any answers to any of these questions? Not at all. And sometimes when you do Bible study, you don't get the answers you're looking for. But spoiler alert, see, Paul does address later on in this letter how the Corinthians received the letter because Paul did eventually meet up with Titus. But now, you can read ahead or you can wait until we get to there in a few weeks as we talk about this. But if you read ahead, read ahead later on today. Don't read ahead now. But let me point out a couple of things here in this part of Paul's victory story where life is hard. First, exactly, who is Titus? I mean, we haven't heard anything about Titus. Titus just kind of introduced here. So who is Titus? By the way, one of the letters in the New Testament was a letter bearing his name. So who exactly was Titus? And knowing who he was yields a powerful lesson for all of us. For Paul, as we know, was Jewish. He was a Messianic Jew. And who was Titus? He was an uncircumcised Gentile follower of Christ. And both of them were workers in the gospel. What a great example of first century Christian unity. Now, we all know how far apart, worlds apart, that the Jews and the Gentiles were in the first century. It was incredibly big. And so remember as well, the so-called super apostles, they tried to get people who were non-Jewish people to become Jewish. They were, in a sense, trying to divide the body of Christ with their gospel. But what was Paul and Titus's example here? It was an example of unity. 
And if we ever needed more examples of unity in the church today, it is when? Right now, isn't it? It really is. See, we hear so much talk about our need for unity in the culture, in the church, because we're so divided. But so often the center of our unity, of what people are advocating for unity, is not of what is central concern to the Lord. In the Lord's prayer for us, his number one prayer for his people, for the church, was indeed unity. He prayed for unity for his people in John chapter 17. But there are two details in this prayer that we either deliberately or we just kind of gloss over, leave out concerning unity and the basis for unity. Look at John 17, 16 to 17. It's on the screen. He says, they are not of the world, God's people, the church, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, Father, in the truth. Your word is truth. See, the Lord talks to the Father about his church being literally not of this world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Just like Jesus, he was in the world, but he was not of the world. In a word, Jesus was calling for holiness for us. Now, we know the difference, right? Holiness does not mean sinless perfection. It means separation. It means special. It means that we are in the world. Again, we're not of the world. And we are called to be set apart, separate from it. Secondly, the Lord asked the Father to sanctify us, to make his people holy. How? In the truth. Your word is truth. So therefore, holiness and truth are the twin pillars upon which unity is built. There is no such thing in the scriptures that talk about unity for unity's sake. It's always built upon truth. It's always built upon holiness. That's what we need to be talking about when we talk about unity. But tragically for some, unity is centered around whether we treat COVID seriously enough or whether we treat it too seriously in our day. For others, unity is centered around social justice. And for still others, it's the current political climate around which God's people need to respond, either for one candidate or for the other candidate, or even for the third-party candidate, right? I don't even know who she is. I think it's a woman. For example, last month in Holland, Michigan, a pastor, I'm not making this up, he actually resigned from his church that he had pastored for four years. Why? Because his views about President Trump and his congregation was so vastly different. He resigned over this. It's amazing. No, it's appalling, isn't it? It really is. Can you imagine? Let's build unity on what the Lord would have us build unity upon, which is holiness, which is truth. Second thing I want to point out is how, was how very human Paul was. See, Paul was truly a spiritual giant, wasn't he? He was absolutely head and shoulders above everybody around then and now. He was inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was useful in the master's hands to plant churches and to disciple Christians and to write Scripture. When's the last time the Lord tasked tasked you to write Scripture? Amazing, isn't it? What Paul did. 
However, Paul was not superhuman. He was human. He was not superhuman, but he was inspired by the Lord. He suffered terribly over what in his heart was what he considered an existential threat to the Corinthian church. He was very afraid that his powerfully worded letter, coupled with his unexpected visit to the Corinthians, was tearing the church down by his own hands, and that shook him to the core. Author Mark Seifried gives what I think is some great insight into what may have gone on in Paul's heart and mind as he was encountering this crisis that Paul had of his heart and mind. And here's what he writes. He says, The hindrance to ministry in this instance came through the apostle himself. It wasn't outside. It was internal. Although there was an open door for Paul in the Lord, he was so taken up with worry, I mean concern, over the Corinthians, that he was paralyzed, paralyzed, unable to make use of the God-given opportunity that lay before him. Ever been there? (laughs) We should not overlook this admission of weakness, Seyfried says. Not only his strategic aims, but his ability to respond to the very work that God gave him fail him here because of what was going on in his life. His life, his weaknesses, and his failures, which he was not ashamed to confess, all rest in the hands of another who displays his strength in the apostle's weakness. Remember, later on, we're going to see this. When I'm weak, what? Then I'm strong, strong in the strength of the Lord. And though Paul faltered here in this ministry opportunity that God gave him, think we can all learn from his weaknesses and his deep concern for the Corinthians, his fellow Christians. We can take comfort in the fact that as much of a spiritual hero as Paul was, that even at his stage in his life, even where he was as an apostle, even as he was probably the greatest Christian who ever lived, Paul was still in the process of learning stuff. Isn't that great? Paul had not arrived He still was learning because it would be another six years after Paul wrote this, after Paul had had displayed his weaknesses on paper, that he would write these words to his friends in Philippi. And here's what he wrote. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote that six years after this, after he wrote 2 Corinthians. And he also wrote in the same letter, he says, I've learned the secret of being content in that same letter to Philippians. Now, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? If Paul had to learn contentment, That means he wasn't naturally a contented person, was he? And could it be that as he searched for Titus, that this was an episode in Paul's life that the Lord used to help Paul to become more contented? So in Paul's victory story, we see the first part, that for Paul, life is hard in verses 12 and 13. Now, in verses 14 to 17, let's take a look at the God is good part of Paul's victory story. 
in the midst of Paul's crippling anxiety over his issue with the Corinthian church, the apostle seems now to turn a corner and to be able to, uh, to direct his emotions and his spirit toward the Lord and seeing how powerfully the Lord worked in his life. And here's where he writes. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance, interesting word here, from death to death, and to another a fragrance of life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? We are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, in Paul's God is good part of his victory story, it begins by Paul himself declaring him to be defeated. Defeated. See, this triumphal procession is not what we think about when we think about in 21st century. No, in first century is far different. Because a triumphal perception, procession was not the individual, but it was the military general. See, this is a vivid picture. It, this picture that Paul was painting was one of soldiers who were utterly defeated by a, a vastly superior military force. And they were going on before the general in front of him, being paraded around in the streets here. The military general was basically telling those who saw this sight, look at my power. Look at what I've done. I have vanquished the enemy. These are my captors here, my cap- the ones I've captured. Paul was captivated. He was captured by God in Christ. Once again, Paul's personal experience with truth himself was at the heart of Paul. Paul was proud to be defeated by the ultimate general in the universe. And Paul understood and lived out what Jesus said was a telltale sign of a disciple, of any disciple. In Luke 9, 23, he says, and he said to all, all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, how often, daily, and follow me. See, in that day, crucifixion also was very, very common. And when the townspeople would look at those condemned carrying their crosses, they knew in a moment where this person was going. And they also knew that this person was not coming back. See, Paul, as it were, he was captured by God. He was dead to the world. Listen to his testimony as he puts it in in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And literally what this is saying here is that Paul is saying, the world has been and continues to be crucified to me. And I continue to be and, and have been crucified crucified to the world. There is a complete separation in Paul's mind and heart about the world. And in our way of saying it, and we've, we've sung the songs several times before, but the world, our way of saying it, the world has nothing for us. Is that true in your life? 
that the world has nothing on you for you. That when you wake up in the morning, the world has nothing. You, you don't have anything to wake up to except for Jesus. And I've shared this story before, but it bears repeating. You know, Kitty, Becca, they went to Paris for her 16th birthday. Not Kitty's 16th birthday, but Becca's. And so what did they do? They went to the Louvre, right? And they, they, they looked at the Moaning Lisa. I mean, Mona Lisa. They went all around. And yes, very, very small picture. Went all around the town. They, they took in all the sights. And then they climbed the Eiffel Tower. They were up there overlooking the city. And then both of them all of a sudden got this thought, and they looked at each other basically and said this almost at the same time. Where's the magic? Where's the magic? Now think about this. Here Becca was, 16 years old, in a place like Paris. And she's asking the question, where's the magic? Indeed, where is the magic? But I believe God gave Kitty and Becca a gift. Truly, this world has nothing for the Christian. Isn't that true? Nothing. See, certainly we can enjoy things. Okay, get that. But a person who has come to the conclusion that this world has nothing for him, nothing for her, has ultimate freedom. Right? Even the freedom to be humiliated by the world. Even the freedom to choose to serve Christ when the true servants of God are few and far between. But back to Paul's victory story. This imagery, again, Paul is glad to be defeated by deity. God, through Christ, has captured Paul completely, absolutely, and so much so that he's now describing the second part of this, of this procession. And he says this, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. See, part of this procession, about the soldiers being led and the, and the captives being led through the town was there was incense that was being burned all down uh, along the lines, along the street. And even later on, the execution of these very ones that were paraded. That was part of the whole situation here. In other words, Paul's good news story, Paul's victory story is that God put him to death and then raised him. From the dead. Look again at verses 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. You ever had an experience of death? Is that fragrance? Interesting word here. And to another, a fragrance from life to life. And because, Paul, because God so changed Paul and all true believers, there is a smell coming from our being. Now, of course, this is, this is figurative terms. But what happens to a body that's dead? It gives off an odor, doesn't it? Remember Lazarus. Lord, he was in, in, this, in, this, in this tomb for four days. He stinketh. You know, I like the King James Version. Those who've been around decaying bodies never forget the smell. 
See, after 9-11, I had the privilege of going to the Pentagon and ministering to the people there. And there was this one big room that was, that was only for those who had the gruesome task of taking care of the remains. And you walk into that room, and the stench is overwhelming. But a Christian, as Paul says, spiritually speaking, gives off an odor or fragrance, as he says. But it affects different people in different ways. Those who are being saved, Paul says, is a smell, a fragrance of life. Well, how can that be, Paul? You're dead. This is an odor here. He says, the fragrance of life. How so? As Christians, what is the one act that saves us? It's the death and resurrection of Christ. To the Christian, that is a most pleasing smell, is it not? Jesus rose from the grave, and because he lives, we will live also. But to those who are non-Christians, our spiritual odor is repulsive. Well, how so? Because to a non-Christian, they see Jesus as just some dead prophet. They don't see him as a resurrected, glorified Lord of glory. How many times has this happened to you? You meet someone, never saw him before, and you sense something is different about this individual. And in your spirit, you're thinking, is he? Is she? And then you go and you ask the person, do you know Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? Yes. I knew it. I knew it. This happened to me a number of times. And this is the kind of thing I'm talking about here. But now notice how overwhelming Paul sees this truth. In verse 16, Paul asks, who is sufficient for these things? Now, what is this all about? Sufficient. See, the Lord has entrusted him and his fellow workers with eternal truth. We think about the gospel and oftentimes we have difficulty sharing it, etc. But Paul considered this eternal truth. The gospel of Christ literally has eternal life-giving or eternal condemning power. Did you realize this? Do you know this? Again, the fragrance of life to those who are being saved is an eternal fragrance unto eternal salvation. And to those who are being saved, who are perishing. It is the repulsive odor of death, eternal stench into eternal destruction. Brothers and sisters, we hold in our being and we speak from our lips an eternal message. The very core of our being oozes a spiritual odor. Why is it that sometimes as Christians we walk into a room and, and for some reason we're hated? Because those who are perishing smell us, as it were. But in our day, I fear that typically Christians are giving off an odor that doesn't pass a smell test. See, Paul here made it clear. The smell we give off will be detected as pleasing to one group of people, ones who are being saved, and repulsive to others, the ones who are perishing. A very common description in the church nowadays is that we are the hands and feet of Jesus. 
especially when we feed the hungry and clothe the naked and do all these good things. They're great things to do. Paul tells us in Galatians 6, 9, and 10 that we are to do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. But there's an entirely unexplored area where we talk about being the hands and feet of Jesus. And this area is not so, it's not so pleasant. See, when Jesus was in the days of his ministry, he went around doing good, didn't he? He fed the multitudes. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He touched lepers. That was a no-no back then. He healed the sick, raised the dead. He forgave sins. All marvelous stuff. But now for the other area of Jesus, hands and feet. Jesus declared himself to be who he was, the Son of God. Some people didn't like that. In other words, whether it was meeting physical needs or forgiving sin or speaking truth, Jesus the Messiah did things that Messiahs do. He was simply being who he was. His own personal hands, his own personal feet, his own personal mouth produced things that what many people thought and wanted were desirable, but others very undesirable. For example, in John 7, he said that people hate him because he told the world it was evil. Imagine Jesus coming up to you and telling you, you're evil. Other places record the scripture in the scripture that Jesus caused division just because of who he was. See, he never designed his ministry as a rallying cry for human unity, though some people in the church look at it that way. His purpose was not to make the world a better place, even though many people in the church view his ministry that way. So why did Jesus come to earth? What was his primary mission? Now, oftentimes we say, well, it was his death and burial and resurrection. Yes, but Jesus himself declares what his mission was, his purpose was, in John chapter 18, when he stood before Pilate. Here's what he said. Pilate said to him, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say I'm a king. In other words, "Uh uh-huh, absolutely. That's who I am. You say that I'm a king for this purpose I was born. Notice, I was born for this purpose. I was born for this reason, to have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Bearing witness to the truth. That's what Jesus came to do. What is truth? In a nutshell, it's reality. Who God is, who we are, and how we are to operate in God's world. We're sinners, aren't we? And Jesus is a Savior. He needed to save us. Again, so what was Jesus doing and being here? He was being who he was. And that is what caused division. Some people loved him when they got their healing or when they got their meal ticket. And some followed him because he was the truth. You know, Peter told him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But others hated him. You are evil, he tells them, and they told him. He told others, I'm God in human flesh. They didn't like that. The Lord Jesus bore witness to the truth, and he told those who hated him in so many words, you can't handle the truth. And that's why they crucified him. But one day, he will return. And one day, the rest of the story will be told. 
And the bottom line here is that simply but profoundly, the other side of Jesus' hands and feet was simply this. It's not what most people want. Many people want what Jesus can provide as far as getting their needs and desires met. But what Jesus really wanted to give and what he wants us to give others is the life-giving truth of the gospel, what saves persons for eternity. And Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit in our life. As Paul tells us, what the eternally dying need is the eternal life-giving gospel. They don't merely need food. They don't merely need clothing. It's good to have food and clothing, isn't it? Sure. But if someone is spiritually dead and we only give them clothing, we only give them food and we think that's enough, then what? What are we doing? We're feeding a corpse. We're clothing a corpse. And so in verse 17, Paul is drawing a line in the sand here. He says, a true gospel does not result in fame or fortune or even primarily meeting material needs. In this verse, Paul basically is calling out the false teachers. He's identifying them as peddlers of God's word. Think about what's going on nowadays with so many. They are attempting to make money off of Jesus. They're hypocrites playing the part of spiritual preachers and all the while desiring money. You know anybody like that? They claim to be commissioned by God when they were not. They were commissioned by Satan. And they were not living in the sight of God as in seeking his approval, but what they were receiving was condemnation. And they are going to receive it full force when they stand before him on that day. So what an unexpected, God is good part of God's, or Paul's victory story. See, Paul was not in it for the money or the fame or anything like that. Paul was an apostle because he was sent by Christ. Paul suffered the loss of all things, but gained everything precisely because he sought to gain Christ. Paul saw the crucified Christ as one who gave him eternal life. And for this man, Christ was indeed the pearl of great price. It cost Paul everything. But look what he got. The pearl of heaven. Jesus. See, Paul realized that Jesus was not for sale. And the true gospel, in the words of one learned man, said this, it was not to be unwittingly substituted for cheap and false promises of earthly power or pleasure. Theologian Richard Niebuhr described a false gospel as in the social gospel like this. A God without wrath brought brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That is the gospel according to so many today. God just loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. That's all it is. It's a religious social club. That's not what Paul meant when it came to the gospel. See, any gospel, any victory story like that is not a victory story at all. It is a self-help story. A victory story cannot be this way. Life is hard, but God has given me prosperity. That's not a victory story. A victory story is not life is hard, but somehow I can tough it out. No. The only victory story we're telling is this. Life is hard, 
but God is good, period. So here was Paul sitting in a rented jail cell. He had to rent this jail cell. And at any time, he could have gone to the Caesar, Nero. He was waiting for Nero to give him a call. Come up in front of me. And I want to ask you, Paul, why do you want to keep your head? But Nero, he was bloodthirsty against Christians. Every day Paul woke up thinking, this could be the day I'm going to stand before Nero. Paul was innocent. He had done nothing worthy of death. But he had some detractors. Reading the book of Acts tells us that he appealed to Caesar because the Jews were ready to kill him if he would have allowed the authorities to let him go, or if the authorities would have. Now, Paul knew he would eventually get to Rome. Jesus appeared to him in a vision. You're going to go to Rome, and you're going to testify before kings on my behalf. And for two full years, Paul waited and waited for him to appear before Caesar. And church tradition tells us that because he had no witnesses, nobody came to accuse him, he was eventually released. And then later on, he was rearrested, went back to Rome, and that's where he was beheaded and died as a martyr there. But as Paul waited to stand in front of Nero, Paul had an opportunity to think about his life. If you'll turn with me in Philippians chapter 3, we'll finish up the message here. Philippians 3, 7 to 14 This is Paul's testimony of what he was all about. Here's what he said. But whatever gain I had, Paul had so much in his life. Philippians 3, starting at verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, dung. That's what the word is here. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider to have made it my own, but at one thing I do, one thing, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. My brothers and sisters, the only story we're telling is a victory story of where life is hard, but God is good. What is your story? Do you count your life as not dear to yourself? Do you count even your achievements as nothing but dung in order that you may gain Christ? May the Lord help us to be able to live our lives in true victory. And may we say with Paul, this one thing I do, not the hundred things I dabble at, but the one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus was Paul's victory story. What's yours? Let's pray.
Lord, we're reminded here that Paul was, was captured by you. He was captivated by you, Lord. He sold, he gave everything he had to gain you, Lord. And all of us in this room, Lord, that's our desire. At least I'm hoping that is our desire. Lord, I pray that you would find us faithful, that, Lord, you would help us to develop a story, to realize, Lord, that life really is indeed hard, but you are good because you are with us. You will never leave us or forsake of, or forsake us, those of us in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us. Pray, Lord, that you'll help us to give you the glory regardless of what happens in our lives. And, Lord, even the more difficult life becomes, help us to realize, Lord, that indeed you are good, period, no matter what. And you are, you are completing what you've started in our lives. So now, Father, I thank you for this time. I pray, Lord, now that as we give, as we sing, that you'll help us to do these things as acts of worship to you because you alone deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.